sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast Warning, the following program may contain traces of irony, sarcasm, satire, parody, mockery, banter, caricature, and nuts. The opinions expressed are almost certainly not shared by self-appointed officious dictatorial wowsers. If you are dangerously irony deficient or allergic to mockery of the self-important and corrupt, then get a life. And this is Environmental As Anything. Thank you for joining me. Uh, I'm Sean O'Shaughnessy, and uh, it's a great pleasure to have your company today. Thank you to the Bunjalung Nation, who are our hosts here, uh, who have been very... Uh, very, very kind landlords and uh, very patient about waiting for us to pay the rent. We live in Widgeable Wyable country here in Lismore and uh, on the Northern Rivers. Generally, there's a large chunk of Widgeable Wyable country here. That's where I am. And uh, that this land has never been ceded. It has uh, was stolen. And uh, we uh, owe them a great debt of gratitude for the... Uh, the, the, uh, the forbearance that they have uh, uh, exhibited towards us all uh, in the terrible uh, behaviour that, uh, that has been exhibited. Uh, and my personal commitment is always that we are moving forward together to try to make things right from this point on. So uh, thanks to the Bunjalung, Widgeable, Wyable people. And um, yes, thank you to uh, to all of you who've tuned in, and thank you to all of the contributors for this week. Got a great show uh, up ahead. I've uh, been talking to the Northeast Forest Alliance. Susie Russell and Dylan Pugh spoke to me this week about our renewable energy plan and how the New South Wales renewable energy plan is fatally flawed. So, uh, if you'd like to hear, um, uh, you know, the the actual environmental perspective on uh, on the, the plan, the plan in short, the bit of the plan that they're particularly concerned about, in short, is uh, the plan to take our carbon sinks and throw them into the most polluting coal-fired power station in Australia and make it 50% more polluting and claim renewable energy credits from our government uh, for doing so. So that's that's the plan uh, for Hunter Energy at the Red Bank Power Station, and they're calling it uh, they're calling it a renewable energy plan, and it fits well. Apparently, it fits right in with uh, the New South Wales government. Uh, Matt Keane, the Environment Minister, and New South Wales government uh, renewable energy plan recently passed. A marvelous plan across the board, except for this one huge, disgusting fly in the ointment, which is called biomass, burning our forests for fuel. Anyway. Susie Russell and Dylan Pugh will be on later to uh, to get us through the details about what's going on there. Also on renewable energy is uh, Michael Mazengarb, uh, who's a regular contributor to Environmental as Anything. He's, uh, of course, uh, Renew Economy. He's one of Renew Economy's uh, uh, investigative journalists. Uh, does an, an incredible job there. He's been He got on uh, just yesterday. We spoke and uh, talked through... The news of January. January's uh, renewable energy news, uh, as he saw it. Um, so we'll be having a bit of a, 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 a you know, a, a chat, uh, Michael and I, later on in the show. Also got a uh, a piece on the. Uh, the, the zombie rat, the, the Aussie zombie rat, they're calling it. We'll get to that later. That's kind of a bit of a funny take on uh, some of our native wildlife from Jim Beetson 
uh, very kindly contributed. Jim Beatson, a, a co-contributor to the uh, uh, community newsroom, and uh, he uh, he was very kind to uh, to forward me the story. But look, before I get on with the rest of the show, I just have to have a bit of a whinge. I'm sorry. Can I've can somebody please tell me where I can buy a printer that doesn't have planned obsolescence on its list of features? I mean, do you know of a, a, a printer that doesn't literally cost the earth? I, I, I know I'm, I mustn't be alone in being sick to the back teeth of being ripped off by slimy, slick corporate spivs, smilingly spruiking, outrageously overpriced techno trash designed to get dumped in landfill as soon as its warranty expires. Am I? There's, there's only you and me here, so I'm going to make a confession. I live in a house with one other adult. We're both pretty enviro, so we only have one printer each. That's right, two adults, two printers. Judge us if you like. But last week, I had to print off three important documents, and it took three days, because both printers decided to demonstrate the meaning of the term cluster facts. In the end, I got on my bike and headed down to our local franchise stationery supplies, thanks Officeworks Warehouse, with my trusty thumb drive and printed my docs there. And, you know, look, let's be real. That's probably the most sustainable and therefore affordable option in the long run. But if anyone could point me to a home office printer that was actually designed for sustainability, I would give them my firstborn son. And he's a beauty. Seriously, though. This kind of crap that causes the downfall of civilizations. Do you think Trump's chumps would be threatening to overthrow the system that's given them all their toys if the toys were actually worth a pair of fettered dingo's kidneys? No! They aren't really outraged because lizard people are eating their babies or whatever. They're pissed off because they've been promised youth, beauty and wisdom and they ended up fat, ugly and stupid. Filthy, inhuman, earth-raiding, raping corporate scum routinely sell us shit packaged as chocolate. If you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention. But if you blame Black Lives Matter, Antifa or the Greens, you've been suckered, chump. Planned obsolescence is just one element of the corporate voodoo-nomics systematically impoverishing us and threatening our civilization. But it's a biggie. If we can get a Tesla into solar orbit outside of Mars, then we sure can design printers. Uh, and all our machines for that matter, that can be kept working intergenerationally. So I went to the, uh, the, the vendor, local supplier, or the brother printer it was, brother printers. <laughs> I've got to say, I went to the, 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 the local repairers uh, and they said, no, nope, you can get a che- it's cheaper for you to buy a new one than it is to replace the you know, the 20 cents worth of plastic or whatever it is that's causing it to make grinding noises and burn your pieces of paper rather than printing them. And uh, it, it's, I would be willing to spend money. I, I have got some money to spend on this printer and it, and it is not available. Repair is not available. I went to the Brother website and it has sales. It has an option for buying new stuff. It has uh, an option to download software, which they call support. Uh, it does not have a, a section dedicated to maintenance and repair. 
There isn't. It isn't mentioned. As far as I could tell, it certainly wasn't mentioned in the top order uh, navigation functions of that website. So Brother is not making a priority of sustainability. They are paying lip service. They've got some recyclable components or something in their printers. It's contemptible the way that they treat us. Uh, and, uh, you know, so please, sorry, you know, I, I, I know this is all a bit much, but if you know of anyway, if you know of a printer that is actually designed to be repaired, to be kept going, to be ma- that, is, that is actually made to be sustainable, then please let me know what, the, what it is and where I can get one because uh, uh, I'd love to. Or if you know where I can get my brother printer uh, made sustainable, i.e. repaired, uh, you know, then, then please give me a ring because I'm at a loss. Anyway, look... There you go. Thanks for sharing uh, that with me. I, I uh, hope that wasn't oversharing, but I, I uh, do appreciate your uh, your patience. Uh, had to get that off my chest. Thanks. Next up on Environmental as Anything, Susie Russell and Dylan Pugh from the North Coast Environment Council and the Northeast Forest Alliance expose the fatal flaws in the New South Wales government's renewable energy plan. North Coast conservationists have described New South Wales' renewable energy plan as an environmental tragedy due to its intent to fast-track the replacement of coal with native forests as fuel for power stations under the pretense that it is renewable energy. North Coast Environment Council Vice President Susie Russell told me... This project will increase carbon dioxide emissions and contribute to the rapidly worsening climate and biodiversity emergencies and take money from genuine renewable projects. President of the North East Forest Alliance, Dylan Pugh, says... When Matt Keane launched his $32 billion renewable energy plan in early November, it was claimed that they were going to replace the state's ageing coal-fired power stations with renewable energy, uh, such as solar, wind and hydropower. But what he didn't say, and what the plan doesn't say, is that the intent is to use more polluting wood to reboot some of those uh, old coal-fired power plants and burn our native forests to fuel them. In the next six months, Hunter Energy intends to restart the mothballed 151-megawatt Red Bank power station near Singleton in the New South Wales Hunter Valley fed by native forests to make it one of the world's 10 biggest biomass power plants. A day after the government amended its plan in Parliament to include the Hunter uh, region as one of its renewable energy hubs, uh, this company, Hunter Energy, uh, announced uh, an expression of interest for timber from within 400 kilometres of Singleton in the Hunter Hunter Valley to feed their proposed... uh, uh, old coal-fired power station at Red Bank with timber from native forests. And so this covers uh, an area from um, Gra- uh, past Grafton in the north to past Maruya in the south, west to Ningen, uh, Condoblin and Moree. So it's a huge area of New South Wales. The whole centre of New South Wales is uh, they're proposing to obtain uh, timber, timber from to feed into their power plant. So it's an outrageous proposal. It will affect a large swathe of country. Matt Keane has failed to respond to our inquiries as to whether the Red Bank power station is included in his renewable energy plan. Apparently it is. 
This means it's likely to receive government funding and that the government will cut red tape to speed up its approval. Claims that burning native forests is a renewable energy with no net carbon emissions is a dangerous nonsense. It is even more polluting than coal, releasing up to 50% more carbon dioxide than coal to generate equivalent amounts of energy. Red Bank will continue to be one of the most polluting power stations in Australia, releasing some 1.8 million tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. Unfortunately, it looks like it will be subsidised with renewable energy credits and result in massive environmental destruction. The emissions will be significantly increased by cutting and trucking millions of trees as logs or wood chips to Singleton in the Hunter Valley. The Hunter Valley deserves better. Look, the, the trouble is we're in extinction and climate emergency. Uh, we need to tra transition to genuinely renewable energy. And so we welcome the intent, uh, but we need to reduce atmospheric carbon as soon as possible as part of that process. Uh, and that requires retaining every tree we can. Matt Keane's renewable energy plan is fatally flawed to allow the burning of native forests as renewable energy that will just fuel climate heating, increase drought, increase heat waves and more and more intense fires while increasing forest degradation and hastening species extinction. The government has changed the rules to allow the burning of native forest electricity. It's changed the rules to increase land clearing and it's recently changed the logging rules while they've zoned 140,000 hectares of northeast New South Wales to clear filling. So they're clearing the way, as it were, for this new source of energy, this burning native forest electricity, and establishing a market for small and defective trees, trees that are homes to numerous animals that provide nectar, and, and most importantly, to take up and uh, absorb carbon. Uh, and calling it waste and pretending it's renewable energy is just going to facilitate increased logging intensity and it's going to encourage more land clearing. So we can't afford for this to continue. This has got to stop. We've got to stop. We've got probably six months to stop this uh, project in its tracks, despite all the government's intent to fast track it. And so we're calling on people to speak up and stand up and to tell the government this, this should not be on. That was renowned conservationist Dylan Pugh, spokesperson for the Northeast Forest Alliance. So Dylan Pugh and Susie Russell making a good job of uh, summarising some of the issues, some of the key issues there. I just uh, tend to sum it up as, yes, they the plan for Hunter Energy for the Red Bank Power Station is to take our carbon sinks, which is our forests, and throw them into the most polluting power station in Australia and increase its level of pollution by 50% in the process and claim a whole heap of renewable energy subsidies uh, for doing so. It, uh, if it sounds a bit dodgy to you, well, maybe this will put your mind at ease. Richard Poole uh, is one of the proponents of the whole, whole scam. And uh, Richard, and I've got here in front of me from the Newcastle Herald uh, from the December the 5th, Richard Poole has a corrupt finding on his CV, but he wants to put the career-crueling event of ICAC behind him. It was a mate of a mate of a mate who told investment banker Richard Poole about a mothball Hunter power station in 2016, not long after the High Court disrupted plans to challenge corruption findings against him. 
I heard through the grapevine from a mate of a mate of a mate. I looked at it and thought, why there's this thing sitting here, Mr. Poole said of Red Bank coal-fired power station near Singleton, which shut its doors in 2014 after owner Babcock and Brown's spectacular global collapse six years earlier. I'd appeal to me to own a generator if we could, he said after co-developing and selling energy company Australian Power and Gas and helping to establish a small American energy company. So, Richard Poole, what a wonderful chap to have on the board for any enterprise. But uh, not only Richard Poole, but we've also got on the Hunter Energy, uh, Adam Giles, MP, a fossil fuel uh, advocate and uh, former... Uh, uh, former Chief Minister of the Northern Territory is a TV host on our friend Sky News on the Adam Giles Show and uh, leader of the country Liberal Party from 2013 to 2016 in the Northern Territory. Mining connections. Giles, this is from the Michael West Media uh, uh, files, the Revolving Door files. Giles hosts the Adams Giles Show, Sky News Australia, part of the pro coal Murdoch press. In 2016, following significant election defeat, Giles took a senior position as the General Manor External Affairs pastoral with mining magnates Gina Reinhardt, otherwise known as Gina the Hutts, Hancock Prospecting. Following retirement from politics, Giles also holds a non-executive chair position with Cock Metals, a diversified mining company operating in Northern Australia. Giles Treasurer and uh, Deputy Chief Minister from 2013-2014, Mr Dave Tolner has acted as Director of a mining company before he was appointed. And... uh, in 2014, Giles has expressed his strong support for unconventional gas exploration or fracking in an address to the Mineral Council of Australia delegates. So these are the people that we know of so far uh, who are in behind this uh, Hunter Energy scam in, in the Red Bank power station. Uh, it's, uh, it's clearly, like, highly reputable, not... And uh, clearly, I mean, they make all of these wonderful statements. I, I actually I should have brought it in with me, but there's a, this marvellous glossy publication that they've put out, which is by way of a prospectus to try to attract uh, investors, I think. But the, uh, I looked through it, and it's a 23-page document, and I was impressed that on pages 6, 7, and 8, there, wasn't, there didn't appear to be any direct lies. Uh, there was uh, at least three pages out of the 23 pages which were not predominantly made up of lies in fact which seemed to me to have i couldn't detect any directly uh dishonest statements on those three pages as for the rest of the document uh it is absolutely thick with lies uh, about how sustainable it is to log native forests and how great it is to feed them into to the furnaces and and rah, 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 rah. i don't want to go on about it too long but um so watch this space. We'll be back with more on the uh, Red Bank power station uh, because it's uh, we've got, as Dylan so uh, clearly said, we've got six months to knock this thing on its head. And uh, if we don't, this they are saying in their prospectus, they're being very clear, this will be the first of many. If they can get this up and running, this scam gets up and running, we can see a situation here in New South Wales like they've got in the EU where forests are routinely thrown into uh, dirty uh, power stations and uh, and sent up in smoke 
literally, and then uh, called renewable energy. It's a disgrace. It's a blot on the landscape for the renewable energy industry. It's an absolute blight for anybody who has genuine biomass uh, industry concerns, who wants to actually have the biomass industry thrive. This is uh, a death knell for biomass. If they don't disassociate themselves from this, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be fatal but uh, for their industry. But uh, anyway, look, we'll, uh, we'll get back with more details about that as they emerge. Next on Environmental as Anything, we have Michael Mazengarb from Renew Economy giving us a roundup of the renewable news from January as he sees it. Michael Mazengarb, thank you so much for joining Environmental as Anything again today. Oh, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Happy New Year. It's, uh, it seems like it's been a busy uh, January so far. Yeah, I mean, things have, have, you know, really kicked off pretty quickly. I mean, you know, there's obviously, obviously we didn't get much of a break in terms of both um, local political news as well as international news with uh, everything going on in the United States at the moment. Um, but yeah, there's always, always stuff going on in clean energy and climate change as well. Absolutely. Well, one of the big stories that seems to have been uh, dominating the picture is uh, batteries, batteries, batteries everywhere we look. Uh, mm. AGL and Origin uh, doing big batteries in installation. What's going on there? Yeah, we, we had these flurry of announcements right at the start of the year with, with some of you know, the really big energy companies you know, seem to be in this, this contest to, do, to outdo each other to, to build the biggest battery. Um, and these are, you know, Origin and AGL both announced, um, you know, big batteries in the hundreds of megawatts of capacity. Um, and in both cases, they're doing something really clever, which is um, building building the batteries um, at the site of current coal-fired generators. Yeah, um, and so, so they're looking to, to really use the, the network infrastructure. You know, these power stations have got you know, existing connections to the grid. Um, so by building a battery next to it, they're, they're able to, to sort of utilise that existing infrastructure. And I think really what they're looking at is, is some of these coal-fired power stations are going to close, or in one case, the power station is already closed. Mm. Um, and, you know, they just, you know, make sense for them to use the, the infrastructure that's just going to be left behind. So, um, yeah, it's really, really positive start for the year in terms of big batteries. It's, it's some really big ones in, in New South Wales, um, which follows, um, you know, a 300 megawatt battery that um, the Victorian government has announced as well in, in, in the south. Yep, that's, uh, what's that, Bendigo? Is it Ballarat? Ballarat. Yeah, Ballarat, I think, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's all very exciting. And there's, uh, there's, there's uh, also, I saw, I don't know if you saw this, the uh, big... Um, using a coal-fired, uh, using a coal uh, mine as a uh, pumped hydro site. Yeah, yeah. So this is these are like really great. Um, you know, these are the, the things you can do with with sort of things that are left behind when we start you know, closing down coal-fired power stations and closing mines, because um, you know people realise that you know what you end up with you know, particularly for a mine is you end up with these big pits, um, you know, big holes that have been dug in the ground. Um, and, you know, what, what they're actually really ideal for is um, pumped hydro energy storage. Um, and you, if you have one, one pit that sort of sits higher than the other in terms of, you know, might be up the hill a little bit, um, you can fill one up with water and you can let the water flow back and forth between the two pits 
um, and, and in doing that, you can store energy um, and, and generate electricity um, using sort of traditional hydroelectric uh, plants. Um, and so you can really repurpose these disused mining pits for that um, for that purpose. And so it's, it's really great to see these projects going in um, using an old um, coal mine. There's, there's one up in Queensland as well, which is being developed by a company called GenX um, at the site of an um, old gold mine. And they're, they're doing exactly that. They've got two big gold gold pits, which they're, they're using to create a pumped hydro energy storage project. Yeah. Fantastic. It's, uh, you know, like all, all of these uh, instances of, of, of old fossil fuel infrastructure being converted into a future-proof uh, technology. It's very exciting. Yeah, it's really great. It's really clever. And it's just, it's sort of, it goes to show that, you know, some of these regions and, and regions which have been reliant on, on coal for, for so long to be the main source of, you know, income for, for a community um, really have opportunities to, to be part of this transition to cleaner energy sources and, and zero emissions energy storage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and another one that caught my eye, which I've been uh, talking about for quite a while, is the state government's key to unlocking rooftop solar for renters. Uh, what, what's that story all about? Yeah, so there's, there's a really interesting study that's been completed by um, the Australia Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've done some research into um, the solar energy market in South Australia. Um, and, you know, there's this real clear gap in the, the rooftop household solar market. And that is for people who don't own their own homes. And so if you're renting, um, it's actually really hard um, or it's at least tricky to try and get solar installed because, you know, basically you'd be asking your, your landlord to, to install, a, you know, a solar system that might cost, you know, three or $4,000 um, in return for you um, benefiting from lower electricity bills. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's arrangements which you can do, like you can negotiate with your landlord to sort of increase your rent, but then you kind of, you know, the actual benefits of having the solar installed are, are really just flowing back to the landlord and that's, you know, kind of de-incentivizes the whole process. Yeah. Um, but the Australia Institute has basically, you know, come up with this research and said, you know, there's a really strong role for state governments to, to be involved. Um, and that includes, you know, introducing things like rebates, solar installed, um, having, um, you know, giving a, an incentive to installers to be, the kind of intermediary between the the landlord and the tenant to help negotiate getting systems installed, um, as well as introducing measures um, to help cover the upfront costs. So you might be able to take out a a zero interest loan um, that's backed by the state government to help cover the cost of getting the system installed. And then you you pay back that loan through the savings that you have um, from lower electricity prices. Um, And they've just said, you know, it's really important that that state governments get involved and help coordinate those kind of policies and by having those combinations of policies working together um, you can really break down those barriers for for renters to get solar installed yeah yeah well that's i mean i uh, i have been working in the solar industry and that's that's what my day job basically and uh, you mm. the biggest problems that come across when we talk to people about wanting to get solar on their roof they're all very excited. Everybody likes free money. Mm. Rent is mm. ruled out from the get-go. So that, that would be a huge step forward, wouldn't it? Yeah, and it's like, you know, 30% of Australians are living in rental properties. So it's 
this huge you know chunk of of the sort of Australian population face these substantive barriers um you know and it's often you know it's often young people and it's often young couples who who are um you know sitting in a in a rental property and would really like to have solar installed um and and as you say it's it's just about you know how how do you how do you break down those barriers so that you make it as easy as possible for people to do it yeah, yeah. Uh, well on the on the uh, other exciting news is uh the possibility of uh uh the uh, gas, I mean, hydrogen gas, of course. I mean, uh, the Australians made some uh, some leaps forward in, in towards uh, being able to store energy in the form of gas. Yeah, so there's uh, you know, quite a lot being looked at um, in terms of um, green hydrogen production and, and being able to transport that. Um, you know, within Australia or, or overseas, um, I'm actually just currently working on a story about some research um, that's coming out of um, UNSW and the University of Sydney, um, which is looking at how to get, um, how you can produce ammonia. So ammonia is this like classic fertilizer that's that's really rich in hydrogen. Um, and it's a really ideal way to be able to transport, you know, store, store hydrogen in a way that doesn't require you to have to try and, you know, pressurize hydrogen and, and transport it in these like huge tanks. You can convert it to ammonia and you, you, you transport the ammonia yep. and then you extract, extract the, uh, the hydrogen back out of it. Um, and these researchers um, at these universities in Sydney have, have sort of developed this process of producing ammonia that doesn't require the classic sort of high temperatures and you know, the use of fossil fuels to produce it. Um, and they think they can produce it using just basically, you know, nitrogen from the air, hydrogen from water and uh, renewable electricity. Um, and if they're able to, to demonstrate that, you, you sort of pave this way to producing, you know, truly zero emissions, um, hydrogen and ammonia, um, which is then just really easy to, um, you know, send offshore and send it to, to international markets as this huge export opportunity. Massive. And, and you know, you've got the one article here with the Smart Energy Council securing mm. a partnership for the green hydrogen certification. So that means we can, we can tell that the hydrogen's truly green, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And there's sort of been this big um, sort of thing that's been flagged by the industry of, you know, because you can produce hydrogen using, uh, you know, renewable electricity, but you can also produce hydrogen using coal and gas by, you know, stripping the, the hydrogen out of the, the you know, um, hydrocarbons mm. um, and those you know they're not they're not quite the same thing because if you're producing it with renewable electricity it's got zero emissions but if you're producing it with fossil fuels you've still got the greenhouse gas emissions associated with it mm. um, and so it becomes really key about how do you identify what where the hydrogen has come from um, the smart energy council has signed on with this uh, uh, group in germany the, the german energy agency uh, to develop a certification scheme and that, that sort of guarantee of origin, I guess, for for uh, hydrogen, which which will give you information about where it was produced, the the method in which it was produced, and and the associated emissions with it. Um, so it allows you to to really differentiate between uh, truly green renewable hydrogen and and sort of fossil fuel brown hydrogen. That's so clever. That's so clever. Mm. Because it's not all good news. Uh, the gas. Uh, industry isn't all uh, green hydrogen the gas companies rank among the largest funders of australian political parties 
uh, is the headline for one of the stories. Yeah. So this is this is based on a report um, produced by the the Centre for Public Integrity, um, and what they've done is they've they've gone back and looked at the last twenty years of of political donations um, at, a, at a federal level, um, and really sort of had a look at which companies are the main contributors to um, the big you know political parties, mm-hmm. and the industry that comes out on top is is the resources industry. So it's big miners, it's big uh, coal and gas companies um, who are really the biggest funders of, of um, the major political parties. Um, and, and I think what they found, which was really interesting, is that you see some, you know, there's some classic, you know, donors out there, people like Clive Palmer, who, who we know has just poured extraordinary amounts of money into uh, his own political campaigns as well as those of um, the Liberal National Party. Um, But you also see, you know, some of the bigger um, mining companies that sort of profess that they, they don't engage in the political space and they don't donate directly to um, political parties. Um, And that's, that's companies like BHP and Rio Tinto. Um, what they actually do is they donate to groups like the Minerals Council or the uh, other lobby groups like Coal 21 um, and they either pay for their lobbying efforts or that those organisations then just pass on the money to the political parties um, and they kind of obfuscate the flow of money between big mining companies and um, the major parties. Um, and so it's just, kind of, it's just really concerning because it just shows you to the extent at which how much money flows and, and how much influence that money is able to buy from, yeah. from these companies. Well, it's evident the influence that they're buying, but it, when you put it in the terms that, they, that the resource sectors donated two and a half times more than the, the next biggest donors and $137 million in total practically, that's a, yeah. a big wad of cash to be, uh, to be dropping on anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, this, the second largest sector in terms of political donations was the property sector. So you've got property donators, uh, developers who are also pouring money into to political parties, um, but they, even they pale in scale in terms of uh, the, the, the mining sector, which is just, you know, they've made huge amounts of money and have managed to, to carve out a pretty, pretty good deal for themselves um, because, you know, they don't pay much tax and they don't pay much in terms of royalties um, and they just hold huge amounts of influence over the, the major parties. Yep. Uh, well, I think we've all known that, but it's good to see uh, you know, the details there. The other one that was a, a bit of a darker story, not such a great news story, the Federal Environment Department suppressing access to information their audit shows. Yeah, so this, uh, this is a, a really good piece of work that was produced by the Australian Conservation Foundation and um, they have done their own analysis where they've looked back at the results of, you know, eight, hundreds of um, freedom of information requests um, lodged to uh, different federal government agencies. Um, and they've found that the environmental department, so, you know, the Department of the Environment or um, the Department of Agriculture and Environment um, are really some of the worst offenders in terms of refusing access to information from freedom of information requests or reliant on exemptions or redacting information or delaying requests. 
Um, and so you have this, you know, issue where, you know, it's, it's our environment departments who are the ones who are, you know, the most um, unlikely to be, you know, openly sharing information that's being received. And, you know, these are groups who are making decisions about coal mines and uh, climate change policy. And, um, and we've experienced that ourselves at Renew Economy. We, you know, we've sort of constantly trying to get access to documents and, um, you know, either refused access or, you know, they departments will drag out requests for months and months and months. And so, you know, by the time you get hold of a document, it's, you know, the information is is kind of um, not not newsworthy anymore. Um, or the classic thing which infuriates us is, is that they'll drop information to um, journalists who will give them, you know, sort of sympathetic coverage. Um, so we, we're always um, behind the game, uh, behind the sort of trying to play catch up when that happens. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just a bit concerning that our, our federal environment departments are not particularly transparent. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's well, as it says, it's a quote here, uh, all parliamentarians and observers who care about transparency of Australia's democracy should be concerned by these figures. It's time for Australian mm. governments to lift the veil of secrecy from information and decisions we all have a stake in. And what, what could be yeah. more important and, and uh, you know, for us to get that information on than, than the environment where, where there aren't, uh, you know, those, those actors. It's not like an industrial relations situation or a... Uh, a uh, you know, a simple consumer affairs issue where somebody mm. might make a complaint about having been wronged. You know, the, the environment doesn't get a chance to, to complain about having been wronged, does it? No, I think that's right. And, and, and there are also decisions that, you know, you'll have individuals or you'll have environment groups making these requests, um, but they're always on issues that, that as you say, are, are relevant to the, in the environment as a whole and are important to the community as a whole. So, the public interest in some of these requests is, is really quite high um, and it is concerning that, that they're so, uh, you know, evasive when it comes to releasing information. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're lucky to have uh, have you uh, out there with, <laughs> for us, Michael. Uh, we, we would be ignorant of the of what's going on if it weren't for, uh, for the journalists like yourself doing all this good work. So thank you for sharing it with us today. Really appreciate your time. No worries. No worries. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for oh, having should, me on. I should say, before you go, is there anything that I've missed, any really important or interesting story that you think we should should uh, briefly chat about? Uh, I think, I think you know, just the just thing that I've been taking away this week, I mean, obviously, this has been a really big week in terms of uh, global politics. Um, you know, Trump is no longer in the White House. And it, it just feels like a completely new world at the moment. Mm. Um, and we have a, a, a president that, is now um, has you know seen the United States already rejoin the Paris Agreement. Um, he cancelled the Keystone XL oil pipeline um, and is is set to put a lot of pressure on uh, the Morrison government here in Australia to really lift its game on climate change. Um, and so I think you know in that sense, while there's some really depressing things that have happened already this year, that that that's a really big positive I think. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how, how the Australian government reacts to that. Certainly. Interesting times, mate. Mm, mm, yes. Well, let's talk again, let's talk again uh, in February and see how we're yep. going. There, hey? Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks, thanks, Michael. Good on you, mate. Go. Thanks, Sean. I'm Sean. This is Environmental As Anything. We have uh, a, a bit of a treat to 
Jim Beatson from the Community Newsroom uh, has uh, sent through the zombie murder rat uh, story. Uh, it's uh, Have you heard of the Australian zombie murder rat? Yep. The Australian zombie murder rat. It's the Australian native marsupial with genetic links to the Tasmanian tiger, Dunarts, and the better-known Aussie native mouse, the Antichinus. Reporter Jim Beatson spoke to hobby farmer David Cox, a car mechanic, passionate citizen scientist and naturalist who has recently seen their work firsthand. David and his partner's small farm is located in Gympie, southeast Queensland, and Jim asked David about this little-known uh, Aussie marsupial. The Australian zombie murder rat, well, the actual name for it is brush-tailed fascigal. Uh, it's a, about the size of a decent-sized rat, has a brush-tailed possum-style tail, looks like a bottle brush on the end, and, yeah, they're a, a pouch marsupial, so they actually... Have they carry their young in their bodies, the females? Yeah. Tell us some more about the fastigale and how it gets to be colloquially called a zombie. They have a varied diet. Usually they would be eating spiders and you know insects, etc. They are tree dweller. They have a bit of a reputation amongst poultry industry, backyard chicken keepers, as a bit of a murderer. They tend to latch onto chickens and typically they like the taste of brains so yeah there's quite a few cases of people catching them in chicken coops attached to chickens sometimes they uh, get there in time other times not and yeah they tend to latch onto a chicken it'll run around you know bang its head something like that'll happen and it'll end up you know killing it and then they tend to eat the side of the skull and eat the brain. Whereabouts in Australia will you find fastigales and what is the territory size that each one will range over? They're spread out around Australia. There are three different species, basically. There's the brush-tailed fascigale, which is the one that we get on the east coast mostly. There's also the red-tailed fascigale, which is found in Western Australia only by the look of it. The northern brush-tailed fascigale is in the Northern Territory. Basically, they have a, a fair, the females have a 20 to 60 hectare range, which is pretty huge for the size of them. The males have a 100 hectare range and uh, generally only last one breeding season. They basically wear themselves out running all over the place trying to service as many females as possible and they just wear themselves out and kill over. Would fascigales be found in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales? Yes, they would. They are known in that area. So I'm sure if you talk to the the local population of backyard chook keepers, you would probably find a few instances where they've lost chickens there too. Do other countries have creatures like the fastigale? Not to my knowledge. I think we're fairly unique in having these little zombies running around. So, yes. And I believe you've had an experience only a couple of days ago with a fastigale attack on your... Yes, uh, we had some guinea fowl chicks that were uh, born and hatched and... Yeah, they lasted a day and we put them in a, a coop that we thought was safe from foxes, etc., but weren't really counting on these little guys. And one has unfortunately got in and the hen was okay, but the three babies, we found them all with half a skull and no brains and little hole in their uh, bellies as well. I think they like the taste of something in, in their, their gut as well. So, yeah, pretty nasty.
Pretty nasty indeed. That was a hobby farmer and naturalist David Cox talking with reporter Jim Beetson about the little-known Fascagale. And if you'd like to know more about this small Australian zombie marsupial, look them up with the correct spelling, which is P-H-A-S-C-O-G-A-L-E. They're a marvellous little critter. They're actually ex- as cute as a button, and uh, giving them uh, giving them a bad rap as the uh, uh, I'll have to I'll have to have a word with Jim about uh, g- giving them the uh, the zombie uh, murder rat uh, title. But uh, that's uh, it, it. Sounds like they uh, they they don't mind a bit of uh, brain sucking. Now, Cardiff University has released a study on ice ages, and it claims that icebergs melting in the Antarctic may actually trigger a reaction that plunges the Earth into an ice age. But I thought alarmists were telling us that our approach to climate was leading us into believing we're the direct cause of global warming and we're all going to boil. Well, here to set the record straight is geologist and Earth scientist Ian Plymer. Ian, it's wonderful to have you on the on the show, and welcome back to Sky News. So that little extract there was from I don't know the nameless moronic minion of Rupert Murdoch, who was reading the auto cue for the cameras there in the Sky Studio, and spouting this uh, this this fascist lies, these these absolutely obscene distortions like in that little snippet i think i counted six different lies uh that he just told just then and uh it, it's uh, it's it is enough to make your blood boil he's he's threatening that uh, alarmists are saying that we're all going to be boiling well no, nobody's suggesting that we're going to be boiling but my blood gets boiling when uh these uh, these so-called people uh spread around this absolutely dishonest guff uh, about the climate and now what he's talking about, what he's referring to, and, uh, you know, like aside from the, uh, the far-right loony uh, conspiracy theory that we're all heading into a, a, uh, a, an ice age, which is, uh, has been being trotted about on social media, and, of course, Bill Gates is to blame and blah, 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 blah. And uh, what's actually happening is, of course, there was some grain of truth in there. There is actually... Uh, the prospect of an ice age sometime in the not too distant future in geological terms probably with only as 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 soon as within a couple of thousand years we may have an ice age to contend with so uh yes so there is some truth in that otherwise it's just absolute garbage demonstrating their incapacity to even read the story that they are attempting to uh spin they have failed to to read the fact that these scientists... There is actually here in uh, Science Daily. Here, here's the facts. Scientists claim to have found the missing link in the process that leads to an ice age on Earth. Melting icebergs in the Antarctic are, like the, are the key, says the team from Cardiff University, triggering a series of chain reactions that plunges Earth into a prolonged period of cold temperatures. The findings have been published today in Nature an extremely august journal, from an international consortium of scientists from universities around the world. So it's not just Cardiff University, which is an eminent uh, institution in itself. It was from around the world. Has long been known that ice age cycles are paced uh, by periodic changes 
into Earth's orbit of the Sun, which subsequently changes the amount of solar radiation that reaches the Earth's surface. And this is what struck me with this. As this bloke's there going, oh, my God, it's like somebody had meted a poll. He goes, oh, did you know that, that there is, that the Earth is going into an ice age? And, and it's like, did you know that the climate is cyclical? You know, man, it almost blew my brain when I found out. You're just like, well, mate, yes, ice is an issue. Stay away from it, you know? Ice ages and the climate are cyclical, no doubt about that. That's been a well-established fact for anybody who's actually paying attention for a long time. It doesn't merit the treatment as news, which seems to uh, have been given on Sky. Of course, uh, you know, Murdoch, uh, you know, does actually drive this. But anyway, we'll get to that later. Um, So... It's uh, it's really been the question as to why do we flip into ice ages? And they've been saying that basically the mystery of how these small variations in solar energy, and they're relatively small, uh, can flip the, uh, uh, the climate into an ice age. And what they've found is that the, it's a, it's a, there's an effect whereby the, uh, the icebergs which are carved off Antarctica float further north uh, than they would otherwise do because it is cooling slightly and the increase in fresh water in the Atlantic Ocean in Pacific in, in particular uh, causes a change a massive change uh, in uh, ocean currents and that the ocean currents uh, sudden shift can can flip us over into an ice age. So it's this interesting. Uh, and there's a whole heap of detail about uh, how that goes on in in the uh, Science Daily report that I'm just reading. And there's several other reports I've got here in front of me. They're, I won't bother reading all of them, but uh, they are all uh, eminent, and th- it does all spring from this journal article in Nature. So if you have Sky News uh, uh, pissing in your ear in your house, then Send them a letter saying you want to cancel your service. They are absolutely lying to you and and deliberately misleading you and and offensively uh, influencing the the politics of this country, but and the, and the world for that matter. Science Daily co- goes on to explain that over the last three million years, the Earth has regularly plunged into ice age conditions, but at present it's currently situated within an interglacial period where temperatures are warmer. Now we've most of us have known this. For, you know, since since primary school. But anyway, however, due to the increased global temperatures resulting from anthropocentric, uh, anthropogenic CO2 emissions, the researchers suggest that the natural rhythm of ice age cycles may have been disrupted as the Southern Ocean will likely become too warm for the Antarctic icebergs to travel far enough north to trigger the changes in ocean circulation required for an ice age to develop, as I was explaining before. Professor Hall believes that the results can be used to understand how our climate may, be, may respond to anthropogenic climate change in the future. Likewise, it quotes him, as we observe an increase in the mass loss from the Antarctic continent and iceberg activity in the Southern Ocean resulting from warming associated with the current human greenhouse gas emissions, our study emphasises the importance of understanding iceberg trajectories and melt patterns in developing the most robust predictions of the future impact on ocean circulation and climate. And so he means the future impact on ocean circulation and climate of anthropogenic climate change so 
the Murdoch's moronic minions managed to get it 180 degrees wrong. They weren't capable of reading through that article or any of the others that uh, you can find on uh, State of the Planet from Columbia University uh, or if you do a Google search on Ice Age Study, you will come up with numerous uh, interesting articles that tell you about uh, what's going on there. Uh, missing link found in process that leads to an Ice Age on Earth comes from uh, SciTech Daily. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's not difficult. It's not difficult to find this stuff, but they don't want to find it. They want to mislead you. They want to fool you into thinking that it's all fine. Don't worry about it. Keep just keep doing what you're doing, people. Don't worry about fossil fuels. There's nothing we can do about climate change. It's all just part of a natural cycle. It's a pack of lies. They know it is. Uh, they are fundamentally dishonest uh, on the, in the Murdoch media. And, uh, you know, I think we all know that anyway. I saw today in the papers when I was looking through this morning through, uh, oh, through my Twitter feed, to be honest, I was looking at the various different... I uh, ended up on the News Corps, one of the News Corps uh, sites uh, through this for this Sky News video that I found. And uh, I was... Uh, I was interested just to scroll through because I never do pay any attention to their dribblings, usually. I just, you know, it's better for your mental health not to have anything to do with Murdoch. But, um, oh, certainly better for mine. And I, uh, I uh, had a look through and scrolled down the Sky News news feed and it was very interesting how everything they had to say about Biden and his inauguration, and of course all decent people out there are excited that there's finally a president who's, uh, you know, actually promising to do some good. And, and actually, in fact, in immediately enacting, uh, you know, changes for the better for the United States. Um, this is an exciting change. You know, we've just had an attempted coup in, uh, in, in our greatest ally and the, and the greatest proponent of democracy in the world. And, uh, and here we have the Murdocracy. All they've got to say about it how, is about how old Joe Biden is and about, and about how, oh, the d Democrats are so divided and, and everything's so grim and hard and difficult for them. And then you scroll down a bit more and there's more and more headlines and they, and they basically go along the lines that Trump isn't done yet, he's not finished, he'll be back, we'll see him back, there'll be more of Trump. And it just goes on and on. They just just are incapable of actually telling the truth about us, or or being you know reasonable reasonably civil about what's going on in the world around them. It's a it's it's an aggressively uh, uh, anti-democratic agenda that they continue to push. And I'm with Kevin Rudd when he says to boycott their 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 uh, realestate.com, boycott all their services. Stop reading their papers. If you're paying for them to, to, to pour their bile through your television screen, stop paying them. And tell them to stop sending it. It's, it's garbage. And you absolutely will be happier without it. Really. So, um, anyway, look, enough. Enough, probably, of that for, them, for the time being. Uh, you know... It's, it, it's, it's, I was started off by the Ice Age uh, study story from uh, Sky News. All I'd say is to Sky News, get off the ice, people. So, uh, yep, look, thank you very much for being with me today on Environmental as Anything. It's been great to have your company. I hope you found the show interesting, informative.
And uh, I'm looking forward to being with you again next week. In the meantime, just remember, be gentle on yourself, be kind to each other, and remember, we are all in this together. Now to take us out with his new track called Sleep Australia Sleep. He's an Aussie icon joined by Alice Keith and Simon Nugent. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Paul Kelly. Australia sleep, the night is on the creek. Shut out the noise all around. Sleep Australia sleep, and dream of counting sheep, jumping in fields colored brown. Who rock the cradle and cry? Who rock the cradle? Sleep, as off the cliff the kingdoms leap Count them as they say goodbye Count down the little things The insects and birds Count down the bigger things The flocks and the herds Count down our rivers Our pastures and are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? Tune in to Environmental As Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, we're handy.